Hello, happy, sad, confused listeners. You know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. One of the reasons why advertisers love our little show is that they know that Happy, Sad, Confused has amazing listeners. About once a year, we run a listener survey to help demonstrate this to advertisers. Right now, we have an all-new survey that I'd humbly like to ask you to help take and help us learn more about you, our audience. So just go to podsurvey.com slash happy. Survey will only take five minutes of your precious time. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy. It's completely anonymous and your answers will help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, and our show. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken one of the previous surveys, I'd love it if you guys took this new one. It's been completely revised and advertisers like it when we have the most up-to-date answers. Plus, you're also going to get a chance to win that $100 gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com slash happy. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so that we can keep Happy Sad Confused absolutely free. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I am Josh Horowitz, and this is a podcast. Probably not your first podcast. Hopefully not. But actually, that'd be a wonderful thing. Oh my god, thank you for listening to your very first podcast and making this it. I'm honored. See, we're having a dialogue. Or I'm going insane and talking to the voices in my head. Same difference. Uh, Welcome to this week's episode of the show, uh, where I talk to cool actors and directors. And in this case, this week, one and the same. Because my guest on this week's episode of Happy Set Confused is Mr. Alan Rickman. Oh my god, I know! Can you believe it? Alan Rickman. Isn't that crazy? I know. Clearly nothing better to do. No, he's actually been very busy. He is out... um, on the stump, uh, putting the good word out on his film that he acts in alongside Kate Winslet uh, and has directed uh, called A Little Chaos. It is a beautiful film, great performances, as you would expect from something helmed by one of our best. And it, uh, it's a beautiful love story. It takes place in the gardens of Versailles in the 16th century. I think I have the right century. 16th century? So beautiful costumes, beautiful scenery, beautiful acting, uh, and Alan Rickman's voice for at least a good portion of the two hours. And for two hours, you get Kate Winslet. So how can you go wrong, right? Uh, that opens this coming Friday, June 26th um, in limited release, I believe. Try and see it on a big screen if you can because it looks good. And you should want to go see good movies in big movie theaters. Um, we talk about that, actually, in this conversation. Um, what an honor to talk to Alan Rickman. What kind of an intimidating guy, by the way. Uh, if you guys have listened to the show in the past, you know, a lot of the people I talk to, I have relationships with over the years that I've, uh, you know, gotten to know, and they're super gregarious with me and friendly in general. Um, and Alan was, I feel, find it weird to even call him Alan. Mr. Rickman was he's super nice, um, but he's got that voice. He's got that body of work. He's got that gravitas. Um, so uh, this was, it wasn't a tough one, I would say, but it was, it was challenging in that way because you have to kind of get over the hump of like trying to have a real conversation with, with a, a, 
an intimidating presence like Alan Rickman. It's it's a tall order. So hopefully I did an okay job. I think it's going to be fun for you guys that enjoy his work. And, you know, we talk about the Harry Potter films. We talk about Galaxy Quest. We talk about Die Hard. We talk about his directing. We talk about a lot of things. Uh, this is a, a, a nice, long, juicy conversation with one of the best actors um, working today. And here's a fun fact. We talk about this. Do you know Alan Rickman's film debut was like at 40 years old in Die Hard? It's crazy. Yeah, crazy the things you learn when you're doing research. Anyway, um, I'm not going to say much more except to say enjoy this conversation. Go check out some good movies in the theaters, by the way. If you guys have not seen Inside Out yet, go see it. It's one of Pixar's best. Go see Dope, by the way. Smaller film. Well worth your time. Go see The Overnight with our buddy, Mr. Adam Scott. Hi, Adam, if you're listening. Uh, Really funny, really great film with Adam Scott and Jason Schwartzman. and it's fantastic. And I loved it when I saw it at Sundance and I would definitely recommend it to you guys for, um, a bit of depravity and fun and, uh, character study and all that kind of jamboree. I don't know what I'm talking about. Let's get to Alan Rickman. He's much more eloquent than I am. Enjoy. Thanks again for stopping by today. It's really, it's, pleasure. A, it's always a great pleasure to see you. And, uh, I was, I was talking to you as you sat down about it's been a long press tour. I can tell it's long because you were the other day inhaling helium with Jimmy Fallon. So clearly you're at the end I of something. I needed something to inhale. Yeah. <laughs> something to keep you going in the, in the home stretch. It was stretch. free. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, it's one thing to promote uh, a film as an actor. It's another when you are a co-writer and a director. Is it, does this feel like... It's your baby, and you have to sort of like guide it home a little bit more than you would in as an actor for hire, as it were, in a film. I guess there's that sort of responsibility. Although, um, you know, I have to correct a few things. One is, I it's Alison Deegan's script, mm-hmm. and you know, we kind of were a bit sort of engineer engineers with it a, a little bit. Me and Jeremy Brock, um, and I suppose is it a baby? Um, <laughs> Uh, it's the weird thing is at the moment that you know you watch it at various screenings and little bits and pieces and you it's it's like it's left me and that's in a very good way it's not something that I'm holding on to right um, I suppose the metaphor would be that I'm watching it walk now right well and you're watching it with uh, through other people's eyes and hearing other people's interpretations which has mm. got to be exciting I mean it's it, it, I would think it breathes new life into something that you know, at various points in, in an edit room or, or whatever, um, you're so close to that material to suddenly see it from somebody f- with fresh eyes has got to be a fascinating process. Well, you know, I'm a great fan of going to the movies with like three, let's say 300 other people and the lights go down and you're in the dark and somebody is saying to you once upon a time, whatever it is. Right. Uh, and so I know we live in a time where that's harder and harder to achieve and uh, harder and, and, and le- less and less are people aiming for it because you know the common wisdom is that all the great writing is being done for television which is fine right. as long as there's a conversation between the two somewhere but with a film like this you do hope that people don't put it on pause every 20 minutes because they think I'll get a glass of water or the phone's ringing or, yeah. or whatever you can't control that so what's 
really rewarding to me is to be at a screening of this with a full house and to feel silence descend. Interrupted, I hope, by laughter. And sure. you do occasionally hear snuffles. <laughs> um, but the silence is the important thing because you, you can feel the once-upon-a-timeness of it really taking hold and people are being transported. Does that, does that apply in a comparable way to your experiences on stage when you are hearing the yeah. silence? Yeah. Similar, yeah. Yeah. Except on stage you can do something with it. <laughs> How so? Well, you know, you're in charge of the atmosphere, I suppose, to some extent. And uh, for the film, I find myself weirdly, um, you know, you, you go to one screen, then you might go to another, and you and you, you walk in thinking, gosh, I hope Kate's as good in that scene tonight as she was last night. <laughs> oh, yeah, she is. <laughs> right, that's not uh, a concern. Um, so that's a relief. Yeah, I would think so. So uh, since we have some time, I mm. want to backtrack a little bit on, on both the acting and directing front. I mean, for instance, I know you, I've seen Winter Guest, and it's been a while since The Winter Guest, which was your first uh, directing and last mm. directing effort. Um, the double-edged sword of being on something as great as, as Potter was, I think, sounded like the biggest obstacle to getting the time that you needed required to helm a film again. Um, but I was directing in that period. You were I was directing theater. the yeah. theater, yeah. yeah. So was was film directing, has it, has it been an ambition from the start once you got into film, or was it something that organically just came up as the years went on? It did just sort of happen, but um, it's a bit like theatre directing. You know, you, you have to acquire a mixture of nerve and will and idiocy or something to, to put yourself in that position. Yeah. Uh, and I think I gathered courage gradually by working with other directors that I admired and noticing that they didn't mind being vulnerable and and that when an, I or any other actor would say ask a question in many ways the most encouraging answer you would get would be I don't know I was going to ask that because I've talked to a lot of filmmakers and I've heard different answers to this about what the attitude on set. Because some people say you go on set and you have to portray that you, even if you don't, that you have all the answers. And there's some that say that's the worst possible idea. Go in and admit that you need help and need collaboration from all fronts. Do you fall on one side or the other or somewhere in between? Or? Well, it's some, so it, I don't think there's not a plan. The thing about making a film as an actor or as a director, I think, is it's such a moment-by-moment experience. You know, you don't know in a two-hander like Kate, have, Kate and I have in the film, long scene, um, that the wind's changed and now we're going to get a plane coming over every 30 right. seconds. What are you going to do about that? And it's my job to figure out what to do. And uh, so there's lots of unknowns. I think a lot of the questions are answered if you have solid enough pre-production. You're around the table with all these unbelievable experts. That's the good thing about working, making a film. You're surrounded by people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, Amazing, to an amazing degree. And to not exploit their gifts is would be a tragedy to utilize. But also, they're very um, you know they're very slow to criticize you. They always always support whatever stupid thing you've just said, <laughs> uh, and so you have to notice that and encourage them to be um, right. helpful and say, 
Well, that might not be the best way of going about that. Right. I, I, I mean, I believe I have some of the right answers, but not necessarily all of them. It's okay to question and provide yeah, alternatives. But you are, you are the final arbiter. That's true. Yeah. You know, you will have to go, no, I don't agree with that. Um, is it odd to be directing when you are in a costume such as the one that you're wearing in this? Does it feel like um, an out-of-body thing? Like, I should be wearing director garb right now, but I'm still an actor behind the scenes. I mean, the thing is, there's enough... I suppose you don't have to go back too far. You go, okay, I'm not going to complain about this because there's this guy called Orson Welles who... <laughs> did it all, you know, and was like on the phone trying to get the costumes, I think, for Chimes at Midnight, and then the, the costumes didn't arrive, so they did it all in towels or sheets or right. something. So, and he's in it, and they're great movies, and so you go, well, let's not, it's not such a big problem. I've only done it once on film. This is the only time. I'm playing Louis the Fourteenth, and it was a useful thought that Push us a little closer to now, and Louis the Fourteenth might be a movie producer <laughs> or director. One of the, the wiser decisions for any director, if they have the opportunity, is probably to hire Kate Winslet if they have the chance, because she is virtually. Yes, I can advise people in that direction. <laughs> right? Was was that was that something <laughs> from the very start of the development of this that seemed? Uh, at the right. start of the development, or when I was first reading it, and I wasn't free to direct anything, um, she would have been way too young. So in a, in a way, it happened the way it was meant to, because I can't imagine anybody else playing it. And uh, it had to wait until she was of a certain age to be... Uh, six, you know, she's playing somebody who couldn't possibly have existed. Sure. We have to make you believe that she could have, in the middle of stuff that really did happen. This is the movies. Here's a piece of fantasy shafted into reality. Uh, Kate has those qualities. She'll make you believe that this was... In fact, people do come out saying, she really existed? Why don't I know about her? Right. She does the homework. Um, she's got the gravitas. She doesn't mind, and the humor. Um, she opens her mouth, and you believe it. Uh, which is what you want. Yeah. And she <laughs> uh, doesn't mind getting wet and dirty. Yes, and she does in this film, definitely. Um, and that Matthias, am I correct, uh, correctly pronouncing his... his <clears throat> he doesn't mind how you say it, but it's Matthias. Matthias, yeah, yeah. Oh, who's somebody that I think I saw first in Rust and Bone and blew me away, mm. and, and people were catching on to this. Uh, was that where you first encountered him, and was he again... Yeah, I think it was like an explosion into everybody's consciousness right. of seeing that film. Um uh, and his name was suggested. I looked him up on YouTube because I thought, well, it's all very well suggesting his name, but he's Belgian, and these people are all speaking the same language right. with the same accent, and also he's playing a very famous Frenchman who's going to be speaking perfect English. Anyway, uh, weirdly, I happened to be in Belgium at the time, and I was, and I YouTubed him and found him doing a, an interview in L.A. for Rust and Bone, speaking perfect English, but with an American accent, so mm -hmm. I thought, fine. And as it turned out, he was half an hour away at that moment in Antwerp. So we met the next day. Some things are meant to be, I suppose. Um, you mentioned YouTubing his name. Have you made the mistake, have you fallen down the rabbit hole of YouTubing or Googling your own name? Do you ever, is that just... No, and that's the truth. Yeah. No, that way, illness lies. <laughs> 
because because you know, and I know this is probably one of the, your least favorite subjects that it comes up often is about is about your voice and the obsession with. I mean, you have an amazing, unique voice that is talked about often. Um, like, did you sound like this when you were like twelve? When you were fourteen? When did when did the no the, any more than you do? <laughs> I came out of the womb sounding like this. It was very odd. I don't... I, to me, I sound completely different to whatever I have now got used to hearing in a year of editing. So I don't, I don't hear that voice. Right. And, so it doesn't mean anything to me. Was there an awareness at a certain point when people started to talk about an obsession or doing imitations? Like, did, is that in recent times or is that something that you, came, that you no, started to notice years and years ago, people talking about doing an Alan Rickman? Well, it, it's not something to spend too much time thinking about. <laughs> Except when people like um, me remind you. Yeah, I, I think if Anthony Hopkins was sitting here now, he's the most incredible mimic. And my generation is very used to hearing people like him doing perfect uh, impersonations of people like Olivier. And, sure. Ralph Richardson and John Gielgud. I hope these names mean something to <laughs> they the do people me. watching <laughs> okay. this program. Or currently, uh, Ian McKellen. A lot of actors impersonate Ian. Um, so, I honestly don't know what comment I should make about it. Okay, right. Well, I, mean, do, do, do I think these, I can do about it. This do, is the way I speak. Do these actors ever do it to your face? There's like I'm seeing Tom Hiddleston, who has done it for me and many others in a couple weeks. Has he ever done it for you, to you? No. That's probably not wise. He has not. <laughs> Do you have any message I should impart to Tom? Lay off? Take a break, dude? I, I, I would know. <laughs> you're okay. You're I okay. Don't, I don't know to have advice for <laughs> um, other people. Going back, in terms of your amazing filmography and career, I mean, the filmography, it's fascinating to think about. Your, your debut, of course, was in Die Hard, your film debut. Um, and you were what? You were 39, 40, somewhere around then, which... I can't even imagine happening now in today's climate where this youth-obsessed culture where people are plucked at, you know, at 15 or 16 or not at all. Um, do you think that, that, in retrospect, that helped? I mean, you didn't have to confront fame of the order of magnitude that you do until you had lived a life. You were an adult. Well, I didn't... It's just sort of what if there's a pattern to my working life at all... Uh, I didn't decide to train until I was 25 anyway. So, you know, I'd had a, a whole other career as a graphic designer before that. Sure. So here we are with a bit of hindsight. And you look back and go, well, things happen the way they do. You're not always, certainly not, don't feel your sense of your hands on the steering wheel. It's just a sort of a compulsion uh, once you've dealt with the art school bit, which seemed necessary. Right. And now here I am years down the line uh, directing a movie and I could not have thought of doing that without the art school bit. So sure. things happen for a reason, I guess. When, when you made the shift at around 25 um, from graphic arts to, to acting, was it, was it seamless? Was it the first time you were employed and the first couple of times did it feel like I have that, an aptitude for this they are recognizing my talent this will go fine I can make a living of this or was it did it feel like there were years of struggle and uh, questioning um, well uh, what I did was um, apply to RADA Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and that felt 
still feels like one of the hugest achievements is getting in there. It's the validation that it's... it's yeah. yeah. Um, and having to get a scholarship because I had already had funding to be at an, a, an art student, so there was never going to be any funding. And there certainly wasn't any money in my family that was going to support this. So I had to audition twice and to get a scholarship. And this was in the days after I'd finished the training when, when you came out, you had to do 40 weeks um, in regional theatre in order to have an equity card. Hmm. Um, you were not allowed to work on film, television, or in the West End without really special dispensation. And so there was a sense of an apprenticeship and right. um, you weren't thinking career moves. You're just thinking stay in a job. And sure. And then like every actor at that time would probably tell you the same story. There were many months of being out of work when I came back to London and or went backwards and forwards to the regions. So um, there's a lot of muscle memory of well, in work, out of work. Yeah, and I would think that <laughs> I would think it also that, that must it must help give you some perspective when you know here you sit today and you're recognized constantly and validated constantly and people you know and rightfully so um, commend you on this amazing body of work and knowing you're the same person you were then I mean give you know give or take obviously many different experiences but perception of you is so different it's, it's just it's just a fascinating thing to think about that that you know you could have stayed with a different career track and this kind of well my training certainly as a graphic designer gave me an ethic about typography uh because this is before computers sure. so you really had to and we had a really brilliant and rigorous head of department called Ed Wright and so it was it was it was like a small religion the spacing between letters and you we had to hand set type we weren't just sitting on a computer saying oh stretch that p a bit and squish <laughs> that and that will be fine you know you really we have to measure and and then balance and so and I've always found that rather beautiful yeah so, um, and the same was true at RADA, I think. There isn't gradually an ethic because of some, you know, our lives are measured out by teachers, I think. People, you go, okay, that teacher then, English teachers at my old school, um, Ed Wright at art school and a couple of others, and then various teachers I had at RADA. And gradually you assemble yourself because you test yourself against what they're telling you. Sure. I guess I now have a set of beliefs and by and large that would be you hand yourself over completely to the character you're playing. You're part of a... What, you, what you're trying to be is a, the most efficient aid channel you can be between the writer and the audience. That actually it's not about you and right. you must hand yourself over to that and if the equipment doesn't fit somehow, then you have to work on that bit of equipment, if it's your voice or uh, your physique or whatever. You, you have to work at it. So when you start to do film, did you find that you needed to develop a whole different set of skills, or, you, or did you have to kind of start from scratch in some respects? Yeah, because when I was doing Die Hard, 
I'd never made a film before and um, I'd done some television, but I'd never worked under that sort of pressure in Hollywood. Um, yeah, with all, with, it was such a heavy spotlight on what you were doing and so much at stake. Um, and I only knew to approach it like I'd approach a theatre play. So John McTiernan said fairly early on, uh, fairly early on he said, I, I've learnt with you, I have to be have everything ready for the first take. Because I was like, a, you know, a greyhound out of a trash. <laughs> and I really had to learn what I was supposed to do with take two, three, four, five. <laughs> I've got nothing left. What do I do now? Yeah, what, now what? I did it. <laughs> Where did, uh, as much as I love your portrayal of Hans Gruber, I also love your portrayal of Bill Clay in the film. Where did, where did, where did that voice come from? Where did that pleading, poor American come from? Was there any inspiration for that? In a way, you know, that that was all about... I think many people tell very various stories about that, how that happened, but uh, the truth of it, from my point of view, is I was being fitted for a load of terrorist gear, and I looked at the guys who were going to be playing my henchmen, and I said, why am I wearing this stuff? When look at the size of them. Uh, wouldn't it be more interesting... This is me thinking I'm in a play. I've got a right to say something about the plot. So I'm saying, wouldn't it be more interesting if I wore a suit? And then, if, and, and also, I said, if I wore a suit, there could be a scene where I met him and then I could pretend to be one of the hostages. Right. Whatever anybody else tells you, that's, that's the, what happened. <laughs> that's what you remember. Then people tested me out on an American accent. And I just have, unless it, I know what specific, I just have an American accent. I don't know what it is or where it's from. Uh, but yeah, I went away and they came, I came back from, I went away from LA, came back to, ready to start shooting and I was handed these pages yeah. of a script and suddenly I was being fitted for an Armani suit. So it pays to think about it. And anyway, it was a good idea. Yeah. Did uh, this might seem like a silly question, but I kind of also appreciate it. it maybe it's it's not calling it a cameo, but in in the third Die Hard film, you appear for like about three frames when you are referenced, when your character is referenced. Did you have to like say yes to that? Did you have any control over that? Did you? I can't remember now. Actually, well, I think they just used a still, didn't they? Yeah, I think it's like it's literally just a couple seconds of you falling. That obviously mm. that that shot. Was there any ever any insane idea of to oh we found Hans Gruber's hair we're going to clone him we're going to bring him back from the dead or he fell into an awning <laughs> if we're cloning dinosaurs we can clone Hans Gruber <laughs> I think the awning would have been a better idea you know he bounced oh I see oh brilliant amazing. another see this is the kind of idea that people need to bring up <laughs> um <clears throat> it, it's it's uh, Robin Hood obviously made an impact and continues to make an impact for my generation and generations since that have, wa have watched it. Um, I mean, the performance in that is fascinating in that you clearly, you, you went for it. Like, that was, that was a performance where it, you were able to kind of go big and it, mm. just, it was justified in the context of the film. Did that feel risky at the time? Did that feel like I'm really putting myself out there or this, is, this makes sense for the kind of character I'm playing? Well, you, you look at what you have to say and if you have to say, I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon... And you think, well, he's saying it as if he means it. Clearly, this person is insane. Right. Uh, <laughs> that was not the time to underplay, undersell that no, line. I won't be, no, I'll be going for it with this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, Galaxy Quest is, is 
Probably a perfect movie. <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies. It's I brutal. agree. Um, we all love that film. Who were in it? It's fantastic. And uh, part of the, the the amazing cast that was assembled, that, that's like from disparate kind of disciplines and... Part- were they all, apart from Tim Allen, everybody grew up in the theater. Interesting. Yeah, think of Sigourney and Rockwell, etc. That's true. Everybody was a theater actor. Interesting. So Missy Powell, Rico, Colin, Tony. Yep. Did, <clears> did you... I mean, I would think, are you able to, for a performance like that, tap into friends that have grappled with the kind of, that, the stuff that that character dealt with, the typecasting, the living in the shadow of a character? Is that something that was... No, I just think yeah, all the information was there in the script as mm-hmm. to what to play. It didn't take a huge leap of imagination to, to think, what would it be like to have played Richard III and now find yourself wearing a rubber head? <laughs> That's, yeah. And uh, we, when we shot the convention scene, and we're, I'm sitting next to Sigourney, and all these people are coming up in their dreadful copies of our costumes, and we're signing <laughs> pictures. Flinging it at the... Sigourney leant over and said, this is a bit close, but come on. Oh, no. <laughs> did they ever tell you in the script, did it ever describe what Grabthar, Grabthar's hammer was? Mm-mm. Don't know. This is a mystery that needs to be solved. It's a perfect phrase. It really, really. is. If, <laughs> if someone assassinated me here right now, would you avenge me by Grabthar's <laughs> hammer? I'm not going to say that phrase. I'm not asking I know you to. Somebody will put it on their answer. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know, in theory, would you avenge me? I'm sure I would. <laughs> <laughs> just, make, just make a poor journalist happy for a moment. <laughs> um. Harry Potter clearly changed the lives of many people, audiences and, and, and the, the actors mm-hmm. involved and the kids involved that clearly changed their lives. Do you feel like, in retrospect, it changed your career, it changed your personal life in any discernible way? Um, I don't think so. I think it, it gave me a, a, a bit of a structure to the year because I was only shooting it seven weeks a year and it right. meant that um, I could think about doing some of the mad things I did in between time, like, um, you know, 45 weeks of the year is time to do a lot of other things. So sure. if I wasn't on stage for six months in London, then I was doing it in New York, production of Private Lives, or I shot Sweeney Todd and uh, Love Actually and Bottle Shock and um, Michael Collins and Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. No, actually, those were... Since those were really before, would have 95, that was before, so that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the others were all during that period, yeah. Was, was there any hesitation in taking it on knowing? I know that only a few of the books have been published by them, but you knew it was potentially going to be a commitment for some number of years. Was there Three, hesit- it was all I knew. I didn't know what was going to happen <laughs> after the third. Yeah. Um, not really, no. I just thought, it's a great character. Yeah. And... Uh, Fascinated to see where this story goes, and it's and it's also going to be done because of Joe Rowling's insistence by an entirely British um, cast, and and you kind of felt you owed it to the British film industry. And the only thing was, you thought, how come Britain isn't paying for this? <laughs> Why isn't Britain getting the profits? <laughs> it could have funded Something, any many a country. Here? <laughs> Did um. You worked with several amazing filmmakers throughout that process. That was part of the beauty of it, is that some came and go and had different takes. Did you find that 
you gelled in particular, not to diminish any of the others, but it, it, with any of them in particular that you felt like it, it gelled with your style, your sensibilities? Well, two of them I'd worked with before, Mike Newell, and I had done a film called Awfully Big Adventure, and uh, Alfonso Cuaron and I had done... There was a series done for Showtime of film noirs oh, back sure. in the mid-'90s, and uh, Tom Cruise directed one, and I think Tom Hanks directed one of them, and Alfonso directed one, uh, which I did with Laura Dern and Diane Lane. and So I knew he was wonderful. Yeah. And that meant there was a shortcut, I suppose, to working with Alfonso and with Mike. Um, although I had a really good time with um, Chris Columbus and and a, a very differently good time with um, David Yates. So. I mean, it takes a, a that talk about an interesting set of, set of skills, but to work on that scale and to still be able to create um, emotionally powerful stories that aren't just about spectacle. I mean, we're mm. seeing a lot of spectacle nowadays in the multiplex. It's a great achievement when... Well, and also the thing is about uh, in the history of cinema, um, when we started, we were going off on location. By the time we finished, we were on a piece of old grass with this kind of green stuff yeah. all around us, and you never knew what was going to be put in. So <laughs> that's how much CGI developed over that period. When you, when you were walking the street and like a 20 school children come or happen to be walking towards you, does that elicit fear or excitement? Because there's going to be a lot of emotion if they recognize you, a lot of intensity of an experience for them. It, no, because I'm not wearing a black wig. <laughs> Do you not get recognized by no. kids? Really? I mean, sometimes. Okay. Sometimes. But those are the ones who really look hard (laughs) it's an outline and if you're not if you're not presenting the outline that was what Rafe and I always knew was the kind of refuge because we both had very strong disguises um it's remarkable to see what's come of the of the kids uh in their adulthood to see the kinds of careers they've crafted and personally how cool they are all, mm-hmm. all are and Emma for instance I mean it's become something she's a, like a feminist icon <laughs> I, mean, I think she really is um, is that something that surprises you that excites you that, that, I mean you, you have a very unique vantage point on the on their evolution as well, human beings it's a relief as much as anything <laughs> else because could have gone another way well you just you know you watch that situation and as much as I was any doing it and the rest of us for seven weeks they were doing it 52 weeks it was this was their life yeah from 12 to 22 um and you would watch it from the sidelines at times and try to throw the odd lifeline in um because there was so little time for that and it's only in recent years that for example I've managed to sit down in a cafe with in New York with Daniel at one point he was down the road in one theatre and I was up the road in another um, huge pride to go and see him in uh, the musical funny uh, so how to succeed or was how to succeed a, yeah and you see what is he it's how dare he be dancing as well as the New York <laughs> dancers because he worked at it. I was going to say, this goes back to what you were talking about, work ethic. I don't know where it came from, if that's hereditary, if that's just the, the kind of family or whatever. But he is, yeah, he, he's, he's not relying on any, I mean, he's relying on obviously some gifts, but he's trying to expand them in a very 
uh, aggressive. So I way. feel relieved that I'm not part of something that ruined three young people. <laughs> this could be a much different kind of interview. Do you remember that franchise that ruined those yeah. children? <laughs> were you were you acting as a kid at all? Were you in school plays and that kind of oh, thing? Oh yeah, my school was uh, had a very strong drama tradition. And what was the notion in your family and your immediate environs of becoming a professional actor something that was even tangible? No, because um, the school also had a very strong academic tradition, and I think everybody would have been horrified. Then, not now. There's lots of young actors coming out of there. In fact, Hugh Grant went to the same school, and uh, Lily Cole. Now that it's gone co-educational, so yeah. You know, I'm sure agents are rushing to see the end of term plays now. But right, <laughs> a lot of scouting there now. Um, no, I, the, when I was 18, it was, was I going to go to art school or university? Yeah. We were talking about this a little bit before, and just the way that a film like A Little Chaos, the, the, the place it can find in a market today. Um, and, you know, I'm a lover of all kinds of films. I like blockbusters, I like small films, I like, I like it all. Um, it is a scary time in some respects because I, I, I worry about the place for smaller films, and I think a lot of people do, in a multiplex. Yes, we can mm. get it on demand, we can get it uh, on our you know, iPads or whatever. Is that, something that, is that something that concerns you, about losing the theatrical well, experience? Well, my, my experience of this film, when you say small... Yeah, I don't want to because you you had some. There were some tough scenes. This so. ain't no small film. No, it's for true. a start. <laughs> uh, and I don't mean that like there's anything wrong with it being small or big, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, it is deeply personal, and at root, it is a love story. And whether that love stories are huge, it's huge it to put a thing of <laughs> two people on the screen. So the themes are very big, and. Yes, it will be seen as a you know a small independent film, or for some reason or another, those labels will come out. Sure. The first time it was shown anywhere was to two thousand people on the biggest screen I've ever seen in my life, and it survived. And two thousand people sat there absolutely wrapped. Yeah. What I know is that um, stories do that. Whether this, and I know eventually somebody's going to be watching it on their iPhone. Or iPad, let's hope. <laughs> At least that. <laughs> At least it will be a little bit bigger. Um, you don't want to see the Gardens of Versailles on a three-inch screen, I do. No, and I've already had to have the conversation over the phone about the airplane version and that, you know, we can't show Marcus's rear end and uh, etc. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's what the words wind up saying. Because you think you, you, I at least now have the strength of knowing that whatever they do to muck about with it, something yeah. of it will determinately remain funny and moving and will take you somewhere you didn't expect to Indeed. go. So, um, And men are very moved by it. That's the other strange thing. There's a scene in it that's only women talking about stuff in a lot room and uh, I've now lost count a number of times men said I found that scene terribly moving out of guilt or <laughs> what I don't know but anyway I, I wouldn't legislate for whether this film is small or big or for who's it for or right. who ought to see it or who won't or too many fences being put up this is true everywhere this is true I mean what I'm curious like what your appetite is in terms of pop culture do you do you, do you watch a lot of film do you see Go to the theater. Yeah, I go to the theater a lot. 
because that's like the source to me. Um, S O U R C E. And what and what are the can you uh, can you count any recent experiences that reaffirmed? Yeah, I found home. I saw her for the second time recently. I've worked with Sam, the director. He directed the last thing I did on stage. Yeah. Um, Won a bunch of Tony's the other seminar. day, right? Yeah. It's remarkable. And talk about big, small, whatever, you know. I know that there will be people coming to see that show because it won the best musical Tony Award. I know that within three minutes, they'll be going, this is about what? <laughs> kind of a good thing actually and there may be the odd seat clanging up <laughs> but on the other hand they may stay there right. and they may be given an experience that they couldn't possibly have legislated for and it's a beautiful piece of work by the writer the director the composer and the actors or is a uh, is, is uh, another play imminent for you do you have something on the docket whether in London or here or? yeah it's always like lurking because um, it's what I do um but it's organizing your life. And at the moment, plays you have to commit to a long time in advance. Right. Films ask you to be available tomorrow. <laughs> and so I have a film coming out in September, I think, uh, called Eye, uh, Eye in the Sky, and about the use of drones right. against terrorists. And, uh, and I've said I will do a film which is currently just waiting for its last usual story, the last bit of funding. So in other words, I have to wait until we know whether that's happening or not. So I can't commit to a play until I know where, which way those bricks are being sure. put together. Is, is, the, is the criteria changed? Is it changing or is it remaining the same? Is it, you have the parts luxury. are older. What's that? The parts, parts are, are older. <laughs> That's annoying. How dare they <laughs> recognize the passage of time? That's not cool. <laughs> is, are they as interesting? Are they? Do you find when you move into a different age bracket or whatever, and you start to see, I'm not the son, I'm the father, etc. Well, they ought to be. You know, I think I'd certainly it's easy for me to gripe if it were a gripe. Look at what it's like for women sure. in the film business. You know, and, it's, and unfortunately, it's like if you're Kate, great because you'll get the top five pieces of material, but the hundreds of other great actresses that don't have that whatever juice we you want to call it are stuck. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I'm sure Kate's aware of the fact that, you know, when I worked with her first, she was 19. I'm sure she's very aware of the fact that she is not 19 now. Yeah. She looks better than ever. She's acting better than ever. And anyway, why aren't there stories about people in their 50s and 60s? I trust it won't be 15 or 16 or whatever, how many years since Winter Guest for another directing effort. At least that's not the intention. God knows where I'll be in 15 or 16 <laughs> years. <laughs> That's your fingers crossed. You'll be fine. <laughs> That's the show, guys. I'm Josh Horowitz. This has been Happy, Sad, Confused. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Hit me up on Twitter, Joshua Horowitz. Go over to wolfpop.com. Check out all the amazing shows over there. And most importantly, check back in next week for another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Pop. 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 Pop.
Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.